It's truly a blessed occasion, isn't it, to come together today on the first day of the week, this day that is the last Sunday in, of course, the month of April this year. And we're delighted that God has sufficiently seen fit to allow us to assemble in such a beautiful and remarkable way. As I mentioned already, and as others have mentioned, this particular season of the year is one in which uh, often, of course, here at the congregation, we are making plans for the gospel meeting. But inasmuch as you probably have noticed no announcements with regard to that have been made, our elders have seen fit. Not, of course, to to have that at this particular time due to this continuing issue uh, connected to, to the pandemic and things like that. And so we'll not be having a gospel meeting starting a week from today as would be the norm. But what I would ask you to note in light of that anyway is a lesson that I think would perhaps be very useful in some connection to a gospel meeting but also useful in terms of every service. Urgency. This is urgent. When you hear the word urgent, what do you think of? What kind of situations perhaps cross your mind as you encounter the usage of the word urgent? I suppose that there are many things that would perhaps cross your mind. If you were to arise in the morning and at your house, water is leaking through a ceiling... I suspect that that would probably motivate you and I to respond with urgency. Is there a leak in an upstairs bathroom? Is the roof leaking? But that would lead one, perhaps, to act with a degree of quickness. The word urgent, you see, literally means a situation that demands immediate attention or immediate action. May I suggest to you that with regard to the Word of God, this is urgent. There are things that, in fact, must demand our immediate attention, and if we are wise, we will, in fact, take that action at once. This opening slide is one that basically makes a strong distinction. We all understand the fact that there are some things in life which are rather minor. They more or less are uncritical. If you deal with that situation now or a week from now, It isn't that large a matter. But there are other things that are vital. May I say again the word urgent? There are other things that demand immediate attention. And so it is today that one of the most frequent tactics of the devil is to bring into your mind and mine dealing with a situation that really is urgent, but to treat it as if it's not. May I say again if He can prompt us to treat a given situation as though it's not urgent, even though it is, then He often can win a great deal of victory in terms of our behavior, especially when it comes to serving the Lord. And so today, why don't we reflect upon the fact this is urgent. If you be turning to Ephesians 5, that text that was read just a moment ago, Brother Dennis read verses 15 to 17 of that chapter, and we'll revisit that here in just a moment. In so doing, may I direct your attention. Paul was writing to the church at Ephesus, and as he directed those words to them by inspiration, there were many things he had to say throughout the book, of course. But when we arrive at this point, would you hear the urgency in these words? See then that ye walk circumspectly. Do you hear the verb see that? He insists there's a degree of imperative nature to this. Above all things else, see that you walk circumspectly. 
not as fools, but as wise. Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. You may notice among the words used in that passage in the King James translation, and even in the New King James translation, is the word circumspectly. My suspicion is that that probably is a word that we don't use a lot in our common conversation. And thus, I've invited you to notice the sense of that word. What does it mean? It's always a vital matter to appreciate the words the Holy Spirit chose to use so that we can understand the message He's giving us. That word circumspectly, as you can tell, it means to be characterized by exactness, for that's the way that same Greek word is used in Luke 1 verse 3. There, when Luke was making preparation to write the book, he said, I have searched out with exactness. That's the same Greek word. But it also carries the idea of thoroughness, Acts 18.25. In other words, to walk circumspectly would be to walk with a degree of exactness, but also to walk with thoroughness, completeness if you please. Not only that, 1 Thessalonians 5.2 uses it in connection to accuracy. One doesn't want to thus assert and make use of that which is not factually correct. It needs to be accurate. In the next place, it relates to carefulness, as in the discussion before us. And finally, one could also add Matthew 2 verse 8. It's used in connection to diligence. I think we can already see then that the choice of the word circumspectly means a great deal. It means our life here should not be lived with frivolous character, but to be lived with carefulness, with exactness, with accuracy, and with diligence in such a way that we're devoted to that which is of most importance. Needless to say, that demand on the people of of the ancient place of Ephesus is just as powerful as the demand upon us today. It is with that in mind, continuing along that slide, you'll note these additional observations. In addition to that word, it says redeeming the time. In essence, making the most of your time and mind upon earth. How much time is that? None of us know. But what we do know is that whatever time we're granted, it is to be utilized with effectual character, with effectiveness, and used in a way to where we have redeemed or made the most of it. Because this observation is evident. The days are evil. And so as you and I live with diligence and care and exactness and thoroughness, we will live separate and apart from that which evil promotes. And that kind of ongoing life is a life that certainly, in verse 17, will be a life of wisdom. A life where we pursue the understanding of the will of the Lord. As you and I close that slide, it then brings this observation before us. The words seem easy enough, don't they? God's telling me, live wisely. Live carefully. Don't just pursue any and everything, though others may, because the days are evil. May I ask about then living circumspectly? Some particulars of it. What does this really mean? The next slide is going to be one that is not in any way intended to be morbid, but it is a fact. These facts now are what I would wish you to consider with me. 
I pulled up the obituaries of a local funeral home, and this is what I found. In two weeks' worth, this is what you see. A person who had passed away, a 42-year-old woman, a wife, a mother of two teenage girls. And you'll also notice that it is said in her obituary, a member of the Church of Our Lord. Now holding that thought in mind, look at the next one. Same funeral home, a 49-year-old man, a husband, also said to be a member of the Lord's church. Now one by one, as you proceed to look at these, may I pause to say, this is one funeral home out of the many in the community. So again, this is a fairly small sampling on the whole, but doesn't it highlight some truths that we'll note in a moment? Look at number three, a 65-year-old woman. Wasn't a member of the church. Number four, a 62-year-old man, also not a member of the Lord's church. Number five, an 81-year-old man, again, not a member of the church for which the Lord died. Number six, a 67-year-old man who was a member of the Lord's church, in fact, a preacher of the gospel. Number seven, an 80-year-old woman. And finally, a 31-year-old young lady. I say all of that to say, look at the range of ages, would you? Look at the characteristics connected to their deaths. Now, you and I don't know all of that. The obituary typically doesn't share it. Some of them, no doubt, were ill and sick in some way or another. Others, perhaps, just due to the infirmity of old age. Others, perhaps, it was accidents in one connection or another. The point in light of all of that is this. There are a number of very potent and powerful and urgent lessons that we might develop as we shall on the next slide. The first thing would you note with me is this. And our evidences and our observations make this abundantly clear, but what's more, the Word of God testifies to it. And therefore, it only adds to our understanding of its significance. But life is brief. Even if one advances to those older age and dies of infirmity in that connection, it is still brief. Some of these verses are, will be very familiar to you. But in Job 7 verse 6, Job was able to say, My life is swifter than a weaver's shuttle. Have you ever seen a person operating a loom? that is weaving thread together to make perhaps an article of clothing or a quilt or something else like that, that shuttle moves with such rapidity and it moves with such quickness. And Job said, that's what my life is like. Later in Job 14.1, he would say, Man that is born of woman is a few days. Few days. You and I recognize well then that our life upon this planet in the flesh at its best, and at its lengthiest, it is still but short. In Psalm 39, verse 5, the psalmist would say, the characteristics connected to that brevity, my life is likened to a handbreadth. You and I are familiar with many units of measure. There's a foot, and an inch, and a yard, and a mile. The handbreadth was an ancient measurement utilized to deal with small distances. 
If you wish to refer to longer distances, you might use a fathom or perhaps a furlong. But if you wanted to talk about something that was just narrow, something that was just very limited, you would refer to its width and hand breadths. Job said, that's the way my life is. And that's the way your life and mine is as well. That brevity is only highlighted in Psalm 90, verse number 10, when you and I realize, even as a general rule, we might appreciate the days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is there strength, labor, and sorrow, and we soon fly away as we are cut off. Isn't the devil pretty good at causing us to think, well, there's always going to be tomorrow. There's always going to be next week, and I can plan and make preparations. And yet for those people, it wasn't true. Do you think that 31-year-old woman who had a young girl aged three, do you think she expected that morning that she would not see her little girl again? I doubt it. Do you think that that 42-year-old person who passed away with two teenage daughters, do you suppose that that morning she perhaps really recognized that the end is now here? The point is, life is so brief, isn't it? May I suggest in Ephesians 5, Paul said that that brevity is highlighted. It should motivate us to live with circumspectness. But let's go to the next point. For not only is life brief... And maybe this one is even more shaking. It's also uncertain. Look at some of the ways the Bible describes this matter. Psalm 39, verses 4 and 5. We are in fact admonished, Teach me to know how frail I am. You and I may not live to see sunset tonight. It could easily happen. Life is so uncertain. But in light of that uncertainty, oh, how we should be motivated to live with circumspectness, meaning exactness and thoroughness and care and diligence. There's too much at stake. In addition to that thought, that verse in Psalm 39, Ecclesiastes 9 verse 11 reminds us that time and chance happens to everybody. We aren't exempt from it. It is not as if we could say that that will never happen to me, for we each understand the fact that it may. Maybe in that light, Proverbs 27.1 reminds us so easily that boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. As you and I said a moment ago, looking at that list of obituaries, I strongly suspect many of them expected to see the morrow. Many of them anticipated the morrow, and maybe there were plans involving the morrow. And maybe even the next week, and the next month, and the next year, but it never came to fruition. It never came to pass. The uncertainty of life only reminds us, doesn't it, that the wisdom of the moment would indicate urgency in preparation and living with care. I didn't say many things about the other particulars a moment ago, but we each are well aware. We've read enough obituaries we know. For a woman, it's always highlighted a devoted and wonderful wife and mother, a fantastic grandmother who loved her children and she loved the various things in which she's involved. 
for a man, a fantastic provider, a powerful husband and father, one who in fact took diligence to provide for those under his care and responsibility. Quite often observations are made, he was a machinist, he's a farmer, he's a truck driver. Perhaps if it's a lady, she was well known by one and all as a loving provider of those of whom she could assist. Obituaries don't ever say anything negative. I've never in my life read an obituary that says something negative. It always accentuates the positive. In fact, it says these in such a way that you would think the person is just the grandest individual ever, and perhaps he or she was. But we all know this. Being a great dad won't get you into heaven. It won't. Being a wonderful mom won't get you into heaven. It won't. Being a loving child won't get you into heaven. It won't. Being the best farmer ever was, it won't get you into heaven. It won't. What will? I'm not saying these things are unimportant. We know that they're great, and we know how powerful a person influentially can be. But what does it mean to live circumspectly? What does it mean to live in wisdom and in care and exactness? You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, this is urgent. It really is. It is the most important thing of all. Jesus said in Mark 8, verses 36 and 37, What will it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? The next verse goes on to say, What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now those are the words of the Lord. And we would not for one moment reduce the significance of being a good mother or father or husband or wife or the other avenues of one's activities in life. Sometimes obituaries make reference to hobbies and pets. And those things are fine. But your dog won't get you into heaven. Being a skilled metal worker won't get you into heaven. What will is a matter of urgency. What will is the testimony of the Word of God. So with those in mind, then let's simply proceed with some additional observations. This is urgent. Might you and I then listen with some care to various writers in the Word of God and place our confidence and assurance and faith in this connection first. It is absolutely vital that the gospel be obeyed. May I say again, this is critical. And we know that because of 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 7, among other places. To you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on who? Those that obey not the gospel. So it doesn't matter how good a father one may have been. Doesn't matter how good a mother or neighbor or teacher or friend or associate or employer one may have been. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, you're lost. Hear it now. And may each of us live with circumspectness. The gospel must be obeyed. The nature of that obedience points us to this. What does it mean? 
as the Word of God identifies for us what is involved in this, one must believe that Jesus as the Christ died on the cross, that He was and is the Son of God, that He came to pay the ransom price for my sins and yours. Jesus Himself said in John 8, 24, Except you believe I am He, you'll die in your sins. Do we believe it? We had better. We must. And therefore, the understanding connected with obedience to the gospel would bring us to say, here is a fact, a set of facts that I have to fully accept. Believing in Christ as a Son of God and thus believing that which He commands. But that belief quickly brings to our mind the matter of repentance. Sin is what sent the Lord to the cross. And sin is what separates us from God, Isaiah 59 tells us. And therefore, repentance means to turn away from that sin. To make a deliberate and careful attempt to not commit it again. Does that mean that I may not slip and stumble? Of course not. But my mind in determination has been waged against it. May I say that in that connection of repentance, how often does the Bible command this? Luke 13 verse 3 says, Nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And on the day of Pentecost, when they who had been guilty of putting to death the Son of God, they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? First thing Peter said, repent. They had to make a change of mind connected to what they had done and what they then could be. That same matter is demanded of us. Confession is also what the Lord will demand. Upon our belief and our repentance, we must, in a verbal way, make confession of that which we believe. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And what a sweet profession that is to make affirmation of the fact that the King of my life is none other than Christ Jesus. I shall do always what He commands. I will follow Him absolutely even until death without wavering. One is making a profession of His absoluteness as leader and Lord of life. You'll notice in Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33, that's commanded. Jesus said, if you won't confess me, I won't confess you before the Father and before the angels. That's a, that's a very sad consideration, isn't it? Therefore, our willingness to confess Him is such a paramount matter. But of course, we realize none of those things put us into Christ. Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27 makes this declaration. You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now let's couple that passage with this one. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who walk not after the flesh, but are after the Spirit. To those who are in Christ, because that's where salvation is. One who is not in Christ is not saved. It doesn't matter what they may think, what someone may have told them, what various others may have insinuated to them. If you're not in Christ, then you are not washed in the blood of the Lamb. You have to obey the gospel. And at that point, that culminates in baptism, 
in water for the remission of sins. We mentioned a moment ago in Acts 2.38, but that continues to say, after Peter told them to repent, he said, and to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. Isn't that a beautiful thought then when one reenacts the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? That you, in fact, are such that your sins are washed away and you can rise to walk in newness of life. But this is urgent. I can't put this off till tomorrow because I may not live till tomorrow. Something may occur between now and then. The Lord could come back. Do you want to risk or wager all of eternity on the hope of tomorrow? And yet the devil sells us a sale of goods and untold millions are expecting tomorrow. And one by one, these obituaries among hundreds of others that could be listed show us tomorrow may not come for me, may not come for you. This is urgent. If you need to obey the gospel today, do it. Don't expect even tonight to be a possibility. It might not be. And certainly you may not have next Sunday. You may not have next month. And you may not have next year. Today is the day of salvation. You'll notice the next matter then says this. Once one has obeyed the gospel, it's not as though my ticket into heaven has been punched. I still have to live faithfully until the time of death whenever that may be. Perhaps for the larger number of those within this audience today, this is the keener consideration. Am I faithful? You need to answer that question, and I need to answer it for myself. If I'm not faithful, I need to fix something before leaving this building. And if you're not faithful, you need to fix something before leaving this building. Because the obituary makes it too late to do any changes. Once that obituary takes place, whoever that person may be that reads it, that person can't change one thing about my eternal destiny. I have sealed that by the way I've lived, and you've sealed yours by the way you've lived. If changes need to be made, I've got to make them. The pronouncement of some preacher or other officiant won't change where my eternal destiny will be. The finest things an obituary may say won't make one difference won't change one thing about where I'm going to spend eternity. Am I in Christ or not? Am I faithful in that or not? The Word of God so often encourages, in fact, insists upon faithfulness among those who are the children of God. Because isn't it true? A child of God can become lost again. How often does the Bible make that teaching? We could well remember the text in 2 Peter 2, verses 18 to 22. One of the most graphic verses in all the Bible, like that pig that was washed turning to the mud again, like that dog turning back to its own vomit. Peter said that's exactly what happens when a Christian turns away and goes back to the world. I mean, it can happen to any of us. We can begin to live unwisely. We can begin to live uncircumspectly. We live without diligence without thoroughness, without exactness, without care. And in that foolish way of life, we separate ourselves from God, and there we have it. We have forfeited the salvation we once enjoyed. Don't let yourself stay in that condition. 
Jesus came not only to shed His blood that you might first become a Christian, but even when you falter and fail, He still loves you. And this verse says this, 1 John 1, 7, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. The blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from all sin. He begs us to come back to our first love. He pleads with us to return to walking circumspectly. For that reason, you'll notice on the slide, that means as we live faithfully, we must put the Master first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Am I doing that? Are you doing that? Be honest. Is your job first? Or other things like the land you own, is that first? Is your car first? Is your bank account first? If it is, you need to make some changes, and I do too. Jesus must be first. He won't accept second place. He never has. He told those in the first century era, again, that if you'll put me first, I'll ensure that all those other matters are taken care of. You'll have food, and you'll have shelter, and you'll have clothing. Put me first. In Ephesians 3.21, we read that as you and I seek to carry out the mission of glorifying God through Christ by our membership in the church, am I doing this? If not, change needs to be made at once. This is urgent. One last thing on that slide. And we've hinted at this throughout much of the lesson, but perhaps it's time to state it rather clearly. The devil tries hard to cause us not to look upon Christianity with urgency. Simply see it as another part of life. Perhaps just on equal footing to a job. Equal footing to mowing your yard. Just the same way I'll mow the yard once a week, I'll go to church services once a week. The same way I perhaps will take care of other necessary matters. I'll change the oil in the car every now and then. Well, I'll make sure I go to church services on occasion. You can't get to heaven that way. That's not putting the kingdom first. And Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. Matthew 12. What then about you and me today? The text says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. We understand what the will of God is. His will is to obey the gospel and live faithfully till death. And if I'm not doing that, Paul said, I'm acting foolishly. That's the word he used. I am acting foolishly if I am taking some other approach to it. Today, if you've never obeyed the gospel, and you know that the Lord died for you, you know that you're guilty of sin, let me beg you, don't wait another minute. Today's the day of salvation. It would be tragic for your obituary to be read. And maybe in eternity someone else learns, well, I meant to, I intended to, I wanted to, but I was waiting for another day. It just never came. That's not going to make any difference. Good intentions won't save anybody. 
Or consider that person who once was a faithful Christian but lapsed over the course of time. They didn't put the Lord first. They behaved in such a way that they didn't encourage their fellow Christians at the services and at other matters and programs. They'll be lost. They'll be lost. I say that because both Old and New Testaments teach it. Jesus said, there are few going to enter heaven. I want to be in that number. If you want to be in that number, there's some things that have to be done. Obey the gospel and live faithfully till death. Obey the gospel and live faithfully till death. If someone in this audience, again, hasn't obeyed the gospel, don't wait. This is urgent. It really is. It's the most urgent thing that you will consider this entire week. But not only that, if you are an unfaithful child of God, this is urgent. You need to come down this aisle or speak to one of our elders. You, the Lord doesn't command you to do things during the services. If your mind is bothered and agitated, talk to one of our elders. They can meet with you after the services. And if you need to have prayer, if you need to obey the gospel then, the Bible doesn't command you to do it during the course of a service. We'll help you any way that we can. But you need to make the decision. This is urgent. If you need to come today, why don't you do it? Because as I close this sermon with this one final statement, the urgency of this is absolutely maximum. And if anybody in this audience needs to come, today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6.2, won't you come while together we stand and sing?